Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Fighting Over the VCR. This is the podcast where my sister and I talk about movies that we grew up watching. My name is Matthew. And I'm Nancy. And uh, this week, we are actually going to focus on two movies that are based on real life. Now, I am not a historian. Um, Nancy has a history background, so she could probably relate to this a little bit more than I can. But she's shaking her head at me like, what the heck are you talking about? (laughs) This week, I'm going to talk about the movie Zodiac from 2007, directed by David Fincher about the uh, Zodiac Killer from the late 1960s, early 70s that um, lived in the Bay Area and uh, wreaked some havoc and unfortunately uh, took the lives of some very young people. And Nancy this week is going to start us off by talking about the movie La Bamba about young musician Richie Valens. So here you go. Thank you, Matt. La Bamba? came out in the fall of 1987. Um, it starred newcomer Lou Diamond Phillips. Um, he hadn't really done any other big pictures before. You know, later went on to do Young Guns and Courage Under the Fire, Stand and Deliver, several movies almost back-to-back right after this big premiere. But he plays the lead, Richie Valens. Another huge character in this movie is his brother Bob, played by Esai Morales, his mom is played by Rosanna DeSoto. Um, Elizabeth Pena plays kind of a sister-in-law character for him. And his girlfriend, Donna, is played by Danielle von Zernick. This movie has the honor of being the movie I saw in the theater the most times. This movie came out when I was in sixth grade, and I went to the movie theater and saw it, I think, five or six times. Wow. Which... Why would I see this movie so much in the theater? I think it was when it still wasn't super expensive to go to the movies, but there was just something about this story of a 16, 17-year-old in high school trying to live kind of an American dream story set in the 50s that was really interesting. You know, this movie kind of has a little bit of everything. It's got a lot of family drama. It's got rock and roll It's got teenage romance. It's got major tragedy. It has the idea that when someone dies at a really young age, you're forever young. So being in sixth grade (laughs) and seeing this movie over and over, and it it was a movie I saw with school friends several times or probably by myself at least once or twice. Who knows? But I, I love this movie. I've seen it many, many times. I hadn't watched it probably in about four or five years at least. So rewatching it this week was a lot of fun. Um, sad. I mean, this movie always makes me cry. Even today when I was watching it, I still cry at the end. But I feel like this movie really shows an interesting slice of life. And I think it captures a time frame, a certain period in American history in an interesting way, like American music. I mean, at one point he even has the opportunity to be on American Bandstand, which... People nowadays maybe don't even think about American Bandstand anymore. It's becoming really kind of a relic if you're a certain age. This movie also has the opportunity for Joe Pantoliano to not be a bad guy. (laughs) He gets to be a good guy. The only way you could possibly say he's a bad guy is he put Richie Valens in the position to get on an airplane, which then crashed and killed him. (laughs) Yeah, but if you... 
the, the nice thing about this week's podcast is everything we're talking about happened, so unless you know nothing about the people that we're talking about, you know, there's really no spoilers, because this is all just history. And Yeah, you can look it all up on Wikipedia without any problem. In the movie, the way it's portrayed at the near the end, Joe Pantoliano's character, Bob, Bob Keane, he actually tells Richie, like, just come home. Like, yeah. we'll get you, I'll get you on a bus or something and just come home. Don't be out on tour. And he's like, no, man, I'm going to tough this out. And then calls his brother about coming out to finish the tour with him and everything. And so, yeah, Joe gets, Joe Pentiliano. I think he's a good guy through this whole movie. Yeah, okay, I agree. He's he's a good guy. <laughs> he's a good and guy. and he dis- he discovers Richie. That's that being probably the most important thing, you know, just to kind of take you through a brief timeline of the movie. You know, it's set in the late 50s. Richie and his family are working as migrant farm workers, I think, mm-hmm. maybe even in the Bay Area or Central Valley or something. I know that if you look up the facts about the the movie i think it's supposed to be in the central valley or southern california but it was actually filmed at a um at a farm in san jose in wow. the south bay of the bay area yeah so it starts with um richie and his mom and his three younger sisters working on this farm and bob re- recently released from prison rides up another great entrance, rides up on a motorcycle to this farm, even tells them I had a really hard time finding you guys. And he's gotten money. Who knows how? (laughs) Could be from selling weed. Who knows? But he gets them out. He um, gets them out out of the migrant farm and brings them down to Pacoima in Southern California. And they start a new life. You know, Richie's able to attend high school and carries his guitar around with him all the time. Because it's his dream. He falls in love immediately when he sees Donna, who I need to tell you, I realized this week, she reminds me so much of Elizabeth Moss. Yes. And not yes, just, and, so. and I don't think it's just that she looks like her. I think because when I first really started to see Elizabeth Moss, it was in one of my favorite television shows, Mad Men, and it, that is set in the same time frame. Yeah. So Elizabeth Moss's character in Mad Men is dressed in similar outfits that Donna had. I mean, it just was very eerie today. I was like, oh my God, she's a lot like Elizabeth Moss. (laughs) Now, the actress who played Donna really didn't go on to do too much else. I think she was in a Steve Buscemi film after that, and that was about it. Yeah, she did some producing, so she she was somewhat involved in the industry, but you didn't really see her in much anything else. Yeah. This movie, you know, it touches on racism, you know, the fact that he fell so hard for her and he would walk her home and her dad was just, you know, this is another movie with another jerk dad. I mean, do we have jerk dads in every week? Almost, it seems like. Um, If not, we're pretty close. Pretty close. I mean... Anyway, we're going to eventually do a recap episode, which I'm sure we can dedicate a whole episode just to the jerk dads that we talk about. (laughs) But but her dad, and and I don't remember who played the dad, but he's really slimy and just, you know, the first thing he says when he walks her home for the first time, what is that guy, Italian? I mean, he's just so rude and just refers to Richie's music as jungle music. Just such a jerk. The the jerk dad, um, who's the actor's name, I don't know, but he is, um, if anyone has watched Friends, is Phoebe's 
doctor when she gives birth that only <laughs> wants or Fe- I think it's Phoebe's or Rachel's doctor who um, is obsessed with Fonzie. Oh God! That, oh my that's, God! That's, that's so that's funny. Him. That's him. <laughs> The romance in this movie is great. You know, again, Richie just has fallen so hard for this girl. In fact, when she can't date him because her dad gets in the way, he writes one of his most famous songs, Donna, all about her. And it's beautiful. There was a one of his national TV spots. He sings that song, which, I mean, I can't even imagine what that would feel like as a teenage girl to have this guy that you also love singing a song about you on national TV. It's pretty amazing. Probably one of the reasons why I saw the movie five times in the theater. The other thing about this movie, especially watching it again, this movie is a lot more about family than anything else because his family supported his dream. You know, when they were on the farm, he would, they would sit around the fire and he would play guitar and everyone would sing together. His mom never wanted to prevent him from pursuing this. In fact, when he had tried out to be in the silhouettes, you know, he went and had one performance and the lead singer was just, he also was a jerk, wasn't interested in letting Richie have any kind of spotlight. So the mom took it upon herself and allowed, you know, figured out how to get him to perform at a local bar, which apparently has more of a cowboy kind of clientele. But he was able to perform. And from there, because they had such a great night, She's like, we're going to go to the American Legion. And at the American Legion is where Bob Keane, the producer, saw him and discovered him and with Richie Valens and his flying guitar. <laughs> um, so the mother supported him and Bob supported him. Bob. Zuela. Yeah, Richie Valenzuela. He, he, who could have become Ricky Zuela? So it's yeah. a good thing that he settled on R- Richie Valens. Yeah. But even Bob, you know, I know Bob is... He's also a big jerk. He's very selfish and very insecure and very troubled. You know, obviously having a history with the law and getting into trouble. They really play up the conflict with the brothers throughout the movie. But Bob was there supporting Richie all the way. Um, And, of course, when they hear the news of the plane crash and he runs over to Connie's house to comfort her just that scene where they play sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny and she hears the news on the radio and Bob kind of just looks to her and runs over to her and she kind of just crumples into his arms and you know not my Richie not my Richie Mio that whole scene I mean I cry every single time every time every time every time yeah and this um the story of of how he passes away where he gets on a plane because he wins a coin toss and then gets on a plane with the Big Bopper and Buddy Holly, and then they all... The day the music um, died. And that's what, you know, um, there's songs about it and documentaries about it, too. That whole instance of how they tragically ended their careers, you know, is... A really tense kind of scene. Now, anyone who doesn't know anything about it going into the movie, it's like, it's really shocking because they don't show the plane crash. No. They just, all they show is them on the plane and then the next day, it's, or the next morning, it's their, Bob's working on his car and his mom is doing, and is doing laundry 
and it's just over the radio they they start talking about it. Yeah, which I don't think that would ever happen again. I can't imagine that nowadays people would find out over the radio without the family being notified. No, we'd find out over Twitter. That's true. <laughs> um, I think one reason why this movie was so important to me also was it came af- after a series of movies in the mid-'80s that all embraced... 50s nostalgia you know back to the future came out in 1985 which we absolutely loved we saw that all the time we grew up in a house where we listened to the oldies you know Mm -hmm. we listened to tons of music from the 50s and 60s all the time and then in 1986 another movie i really loved called peggy sue got married that was also kind of an eight a 50s nostalgia movie so then you have this movie come out in 87 so just kind of continuing this wave of movies set in the 50s and 60s 50s back to the future being probably the happiest of those three movies most definitely <laughs> um peggy sue got married and la bamba like again no spoilers for peggy sue but both of those have some kind of sadness and tragedy to them for sure i'm not a huge fan of peggy sue got oh, married oh i love that movie I, there's one huge reason why I'm not a fan of that movie. Does it start with Nicolas Cage? That And it ends with Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I actually like him in that movie quite a bit. Totally going off track. We could probably do a whole episode about my, my love-hate relationship with Nicolas Cage. Getting back to, to this movie, you had mentioned you mentioned his the relationship with his brother Bob. Yeah. When I rewatched this movie, I had forgotten I mean, it just seemed like this movie is about the two of them. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there is almost equal screen time yes. for the two of them. Yes. And, it, and you know, talk about being about family, being about relationships that, not just the relationship he has with Donna, but the relationships that, that Richie has with his brother. They really do a great job of, of telling a story that is very relatable mm-hmm. to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And um, Bob is... A complicated character. He's way more. Com- I mean, of characters in this movie, he's the most complicated character. He's way more complicated than Richie. Richie is very much like I have a dream. I play music. I love this girl. I want. I want to take care of my family and and buy my mom a house and just you know see the world. And Bob has a lot more. He's got jealousy issues. He has living in Ricky in Richie's shadow issues. He's got a lot anger of, he's issues. Got, he's got issues with his mom because his mom is is the one that turned him in and sent him to jail. I mean, there are some. There's a lot of com- complexity about Bob that is almost more intriguing in in some ways. You know, there's a scene where Bob has taken i mean when you first meet the characters in this movie they're on the the migrant farm Mm -hmm. and bob shows up and richie introduces rosie to him and has his arm around rosie almost as if they're an item and like the next scene bob is is having sex with her and, and in, in the middle of the, you know, in, in the orchard, you know, banging her head against a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Watch the movie. It is hitting a tree. (laughs) And the next day, Richie's like, dude, he's like giving him this look like, dude, what the hell is wrong with you? (laughs) Like, did did you not see us together? And, And, you know, Richie never really kind of, confronts Rosie about that but Bob just doesn't care he just feels like he's 
he has like this kind of like people owe me kind of kind of vibe. Yeah. You know, because he's been kind of shit on. Well, I mean, he they they explain how he never knew his his biological father, that Richie's biological father, Steve, who has died, was really the one that raised him. But he says later in the movie when they get in this really big fight around Christmas time, you know, I love Steve like a dog. I was going to take scraps. I just wanted anything from him. And I always knew you were treated better. And it's only only later when he understood that he wasn't his real son, why he wasn't treated the same. But but then there's the whole, do you act out like that because you didn't feel loved versus... Could you? But there's no reason Bob couldn't have chosen a different path. Oh, absolutely. And that, and and honestly, when you were describing Richie, and you know he is kind of this perfect guy, with the one exception of having the blind spot for Bob. True. Yeah. Because think about all of the con, all the conflict he ever has with his family or his mom. It involves helping Bob, whether yeah. it was at the American Legion where he, Bob walks in drunk. Mm-hmm. And starts a big fight because he just can't help himself. You know, Richie jumps off the stage to go join in the brawl to protect his brother. He agrees to go to Mexico <laughs> with Bob because Bob is just that persuasive. I mean, Bob is his blind spot. Yeah. And 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 I think part of it is just because he always looked up to him. Of course. He's his older brother, and he just always kind of looked up to him. Yeah. Interesting fact, the actors... Lou Diamond Phillips, who plays Richie, Richie Valens, is actually older mm. than Isai Morales. Mm. <laughs> the, those two, the, the two actors, you know, do such a good job telling a story. Now, we don't know how these guys were in real life, so we don't know how well they actually portrayed yeah. the real the real guys. But, um, you know, a lot of you, a lot of this movie was, I think, done with the blessing of the Valenzuela family mm-hmm. and. Um, Connie, who play, who is his his mom, actually gets a cameo mm-hmm. in the movie. You know, in one of the scenes, you see her on a couch. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely, you know, as far as the story goes, we can really kind of believe this to be, you know, as true as as it can be. I mean, one of the problems that I w- I have sometimes with movies based on true stories is how they they change it just to make a movie better. And, and I understand why that happens because they're trying to, they're trying to make something that is fun to watch or riveting or captures the attention or tells a story, but it's not necessarily, it's not a documentary. It's a movie. It's supposed to be entertainment. And whether they're using real, you know, something real or something not real, that's the ultimate goal is to be entertaining. Well, I actually, I love biopics. Mm-hmm. It's maybe my favorite genre because I just feel like it's so interesting to kind of see what someone's interpretation of a story or a life, you know, someone's real, the real events. Now, obviously, not every biopic is a good one. Some of them take a lot more liberties than they should, but I do find them very entertaining. And for this movie in particular, because it's set in California, because it was about music, which, again, we grew up listening to so much music, especially music from the 50s and 60s, and it was about teenagers, and I saw this movie when I was 10 or 11. It just, 
it, it, it really sang to me in a way. And I, I, I think it's, I think it holds up, you know, watching it this week, I still think it actually holds up really well. I, I do too. There, when I was rewatching this with my uh, research assistant, also known as my wife, <laughs> um, you know, one thing that her and I noticed um, was that is, there's a problem with movies made in the 80s that are trying to portray things in the 50s where they just don't get it right. Like, you see, like, they don't necessarily get hair styles right or and and we saw a little bit of this in Greece too oh yeah and uh, uh, the movie where you see it I think the most that is probably my biggest pet peeve is Dirty Dancing where (laughs) there's I mean besides the hair being wrong in Dirty Dancing and some of it which kind of gets it wrong but it's the music like they've got 80s style music in this 1950s (laughs) movie that just it's cringeworthy to you me. You don't think time of my life could have fit in the 60s? <laughs> no. And, and <laughs> it just, it, it just bothers me. Yeah. And, and, and if you're trying now, again, it's a movie about, it's trying to be entertaining. It's not supposed to be yeah. historically accurate, but you know, in, in La Bamba, they nail the music down because they can use his original music. Mm-hmm. They use music that, is from that time, and they really do a great job of capturing the the era. You had Back to the Future, which we could we will go at some point. We will talk about Back yes. to the Future to to a huge extent, but um, you know they kind of nail a lot of stuff in that movie. And then Peggy Sue Got Married also kind of has that similar time jump kind of factor, like Back yeah. to the Future, but. Um, you know, you kind of, you still feel like you're there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and whenever you're doing a biopic, I think it's important to not just capture the story of the person, but also the story of the time. You know, it's not just about, yeah, you because, want... because, I mean, what, what's the point of just telling a story about somebody if it, if you're not putting them, you know, you got to create the correct context, you gotta create the context, you know, so whether it's, the beginning of rock and roll where there's not a whole lot on the radio and you mm-hmm. got to do a lot of promotion as much as you can. And, and you get some... American bandstand too, yeah, which yeah. again is a foreign concept to people nowadays. You know, one thing in that is kind of crazy. If you think about it, you know, when, when Bob Keen first meets him and then t- says, you know, I'd like to record you. He basically takes him into his home studio with like this little tape, rec- you know, this little reel to reel and everything like that. And that's no different than what we're doing right here. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I mean, the technology has been updated a little bit, but it's not that much more advanced. Right. I mean, and the scenario is, is fairly the same, but don't worry. Neither of us will start singing. No. Mulder might start singing. Yeah. Our podcast. He's, he's here. But, um, so you would say overall you like this movie? I do like this movie. It's it's it, it and, and it's very sad. It is not Ugh. a fun movie to watch. And when I rewatched it, I was very I was sad. And you know it's it's hard. You know, and I think the thing that that struck me and I never caught on to this the many times that I rewatched it with you when we were kids is thinking about like I see I see Lou Diamond Phillips and I don't see a seventeen year old kid. Mm-mm. I see some twenty five year old actor who. Was playing He's so cute. <laughs> was playing this teenager, and then when I was just rewatching, I was like, "Crap, man, he was seventeen. He mm-hmm. had he had his. This is 
tragedy upon tragedy. I mean, you had, you know, three great artists and the pilot on this plane. Who knows what the musical landscape would have been like if they would have survived that. And I think about that, about lots of young musicians and I mean, young artists in general, but if you're just thinking about just the, just music from Jim Morrison to Kurt Cobain to Jimi Hendrix to Tupac Shakur, I mean, these are all, you know, musicians who died young and imagine what they what they could have done yeah. as they had gotten older. And, and one thing that, um, my wife and I were talking about was, you know, what about Richie Valens? If he hadn't, if he hadn't died, he'd. Pro- I mean, what would the musical landscape be for Latino artists over t- over that time up to up to now? I mean, he would probably be, still be alive playing music. I Maybe. mean, you, he could possibly be still. He, I think music. he'd be close to eighty by now. In here in the Bay Area, like probably, if you're thinking of Latin musicians, the, what's the one person you think of? Santana. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. Which is a perfect bridge. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I really um, enjoy this movie. I'm really glad that you picked it. Yay. It was a fun, it was a fun movie to talk about. And Joe Pantoliano gets to redeem himself. He does. He does. Well, this was pretty, still pretty early on. I mean. He had I, hair. He had more hair and he did this probably after Goonies. So, yeah. yeah. He, and, and he was. He was not good as a Fratelli. <laughs> he was a bad Fratelli. <laughs> We're going to move on to my to my movie, which I'm kind of... I, when I picked this movie, I was possibly breaking some of the format that, you know, maybe Nancy was going by because we're going to talk about the movie Zodiac, which came out in 2007. Now, I didn't really grow up on this movie, but... This is a movie that I would probably put in my top five movies of all time. And part of the reason is, is when I watch it, I mean, this is the movie where if it is on TV, I will stop and watch this. I don't care what part it's in. I will stop and watch this movie because every minute of this movie to me is entertaining. There is nothing boring about this movie. It has a great flow. The directing is great. The acting is amazing. And it's a really interesting story for so many reasons. Um, Primarily, number one, it takes place in the Bay Area. So you get to see the Bay Area changing over time, how it's portrayed in the movie. Um, It's about 10 years after La Bamba ends. Because I think La Bamba, the, the plane crash was in January of 59, and this movie starts almost exactly 10 years later. Well, yeah, it's um, this movie starts on the 4th of July in 1969 when we see what is one of the first mostly publicized murders by the Zodiac Killer. Now, um, I'm not going to go into the whole history of the Zodiac Killer. Um, There's a lot of details and there's a lot of stuff that happens over a long period of time, but I will talk about, you know, some details of it in regards to the movie, um, and how the movie is, is, you know, portrays the, you know, really awful, (laughs) awful, awful, um, murders of some, some young people in the Bay area. And, um, one of the things that 
intrigues me about this movie, other than that it's an amazing, is that our parents were the age of some of the victims at the time mm-hmm. that this was going on. And I remember, you know, when I first saw this movie, I was telling my telling mom and dad, you guys got to watch this movie. And mom immediately was like, I'm not watching that movie because yeah. I lived it. And I was, I remember being told not to go out at night and being, and being totally scared and not to go to you know, anywhere in a certain time and all this kind of stuff. And it has traumatized her mm-hmm. in a way. She still has not seen this movie. Yeah. My dad, you know, our dad. <laughs> <laughs> we will do that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> You know, he would watch the movie, but I still think it would disturb him. Um, but well, he, al- he also kind of looks like the guy at the lake, except no glasses. Kind of. I mean, lots of guys wore their hair that way. Yeah. And tall. And had, you know, polo shirts on <laughs> and were pre-law. <laughs> Talking about cities that were drowned by the lake. Yeah. Duh, um, we did this last summer. You already told me this story. Right. So the movie starts in 1969, which, you know, is very, if anyone is into true American crime, is a huge year for for a lot of stuff because it's the same year of the Charles Manson murders mm. and, um, when, and a lot of um, the murders by Ted Bundy. Mm. So... This year, 2019, you're going to see a lot of stuff yeah. about Charles Manson and Ted Bundy and maybe even some, some a lot more about the Zodiac Killer. Which is unsolved. Well, that is one of the that's one of the things about this movie. So when David Fincher, who has made a lot of great movies, um, the way they tell this story is based on a book by Robert Graysmith, who in the movie is portrayed by Jake Gyllenhaal. And when they tell the story in the movie, all the killing happens in the first 30 minutes of the movie. After that, the rest of the movie is just investigation, investigation, investigation. Even the cab scene in San Francisco? That's, that's in, in the, the first, first 30, 30 minutes? Yep. It's in the first wow. 30 minutes of the movie. And the movie's like two hours and 40 minutes long. Right. The whole rest of the movie is just investigating who the Zodiac Killer could be. Ioni Sky though that part didn't happen in the first half hour. It didn't, but he didn't kill. He didn't, he didn't. Kill, kill her. He almost threw her baby out the window though. That's right. So how the Bazodia killer becomes well known in the Bay Area is he starts sending letters to Bay Area newspapers, and within these letters he sends um, ciphers or um, word puzzles that people have to decode to kind of figure out what his next message is, and. Um, that's where we meet one of the stars of the movie, Jake Gyllenhaal. And the other s- star of the movie, he plays a reporter, and it's Robert Downey Jr. playing so Paul good. Avery. And the performances between these two actors in this movie is great. They have to interact a lot because they both work at the Chronicle. You know, Robert is super intrigued and super interested to a point where he later becomes obsessed with finding out who the Zodiac killer is. And Paul Avery is kind of his source for, you know, talking about this and getting information about the murders because he's the lead reporter on the story. So there is this banter between the two of them that goes back and forth. That is hilarious. The humor that they have when, 
talking back and forth is almost um, upli- not uplifting, but it lightens the mood of this dark kind of story, you know. And then late, you know, later, you know, when the third killing happens, which is of a cab driver in San Francisco. So now you have, you've gone from having the Zodiac killer who is mainly focused in the North Bay now in the heart of the city in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And there's two main investigators that are um, working on the case. One is Anthony Edwards, who at uh, this, you know, everyone knows as Dr. Green from ER mm-hmm. or from Revenge of the Nerds, which. Or Goose from Top Gun. Goose from Top Gun. There you go. But the main investigator that we see a lot. It's played by Mark Ruffalo. His name is Dave Toski. The two of them are doing their investigation, and when Toski has to interact with Paul Avery, the two of them have this relationship where Avery is just trying to get a scoop, and he's constantly doing things that could possibly fumble their investigation to the point where he ultimately does screw up their investigation by following a lead that has very little merit in Southern California and then breaking it as if he you know, is the lead investigator or something like that and making the cops look like idiots. He even wants to insinuate that he should be the primary liaison for all of the letters that are being sent to the multiple newspapers and then kind of distribute them amongst each other. Like he, he really takes an obsessive, Obsessive in a different way than Robert Graysmith's character does. Well, he has the obsessiveness of someone who's trying to do their job. And then later, and again, we don't know if this actually came from the Zodiac Killer, but he receives a threatening letter. With a bloody shirt. With a bloody part of the shirt, of a shirt that is taken from one of the victims. And at this point, he says he wants a gun, he starts getting very paranoid, mm-hmm. and he starts wearing a pin that you can, um, that, you know, these real pins that says, I am not Avery, <laughs> which you can go online and buy if wow. you want one. You know, he ends up going, you know, he becomes going kind of, he goes kind of crazy in yeah. the movie, loses his job, starts writing for another paper. Um, incidentally, the replacement reporter is played by Adam Goldberg, who was also in Dazed and Confused. Yes. <laughs> back-to-back appearances. Back-to-back appearances of Mr. Goldberg. You've got some really great acting from um, from some really great actors. And, and I really love Mark Ruffalo in this movie. He has a, a demeanor of being this investigator that is really great. And he also has some really great one-liner kind of quirky funny things and again it kind of lightens the mood of it or i'm we're just kind of sick people and think that his humor you know why would there be anything funny in a movie about the zodiac killer there's nothing there's nothing sick about his obsession with animal crackers no, that's that, that's that, pretty funny. That's funny, but um, like one of the best lines, and you and I have talked about it, is um, you know they're looking for leads. They need leads to try and figure out who this guy, who the Zodiac killer is. And an elderly woman says, "Have you ever thought that the killer might be Paul Avery?" And his response is, "Frequently." Exactly. <laughs> so I mean, there, it's stuff like that that makes this movie 
so great. Yes. I mean, you're taking this, you're taking a tragedy and trying again to tell an entertaining story. It wasn't just a tragedy. It was a terror <laughs> event that happened in the, in greater California for 10 years. Yeah. Because he, you know, he, the first murder takes place in, I believe, Solano County, then in Napa County, and then in San Francisco County. And then we, we get another hint at a possible murder that might happen in one of the there's there's two really tense scenes I think of in this in this movie, and the the first only two, I'm and I'm talking like I'm freaked out watching it. Okay, I can think of at least three then. Okay, four. <laughs> okay. No, there's at least four. Well, well, this one is really disturbing for me. Is we're focused on a woman who mm, is mm-hmm. driving her car and starts having trouble with her tire. And um, the actress is um, Ioni Sky from Say Anything. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the few other things that she ever did. Um, and she's driving in her car. Her starts having trouble. Her tire gets loose. And then so she pulls over. Then a good Samaritan comes and says, hey, it looks like your tire's loose. So let me tighten it for you. Goes in the back with his tire iron, gets it all fixed. Then he drives away. And then she starts driving away and her tire falls off. Guess he didn't fix it. Darn. So he offers to give her a ride to the nearest service station and they get in the car and they pass the service station. And one of the things that he didn't know when he picked her up was she also had a baby in the car. So they're driving along and they pass the service station. She says, wasn't that a service station? He goes, it was closed. And then he turns to her and says, before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. Mm. And that line is so creepy <laughs> and so disturbing, yet the way it is delivered just freaks you out in, a, in this way. And then it just fades to black. So you don't even so you don't you're like, what is going on? And then the next thing you see is a truck driver has pulled over, is waving someone down, is waving people down. And this other car pulls over and she is alive and screaming on the side of the road and saying, you know, says like, I jumped out of the car while, and then she hid the baby in the bushes because she didn't, she was hoping that the killer wouldn't come back. I mean, and it, and it freaked her out. And to this day, I don't think they even really know if that was the Zodiac killer that did that. Mm, Copycats. But that was the kind of fear that was, you know, brought on Mm -hmm. by everything that was going on because, you know, to this day, we don't know who the Zodiac killer was. Nope. And throughout the movie, you know, we're doing this investigation, trying to figure out who it is. And it, it gets to a point where the cops are just like, it's an unsolved murder. We haven't heard from the Zodiac. Except, you know, and he does, he calls in, you know, at one point, Brian Cox's character plays either a psychiatrist or, Someone that goes on a morning show and he's trying to talk directly to the Zodiac Killer and he calls in. I mean, the Zodiac Killer, you know, reaches out by sending the letters of the newspapers and phoning on that morning show. Well, then they find, but the thing is, is they figure out that he actually didn't make the call. Oh, really? The Zodiac Killer, never... d- the Zodiac Killer didn't make the call. He made mm-hmm. a, he made an initial call. 
but he didn't make the call that was on the TV. Ugh. I mean, and stuff like that, like just not knowing that who this guy is to where the cops have to inter- I mean, they get thousands of leads yeah. an hour. <laughs> yeah. So you said that was one of two scenes. So both scenes early in the movie with the kids, the very, very first scene where the girl is murdered and the guy is left there, the younger guys. Then later at the lake, that scene is awful and scary. They Maybe are, not as scary, but it's still super scary. They are awful, but the way that they are filmed and the way and, – and just knowing that you're watching a movie about the Zodiac Killer, like, it doesn't seem as suspenseful. Like, I know something is about to happen. Yeah. But the scene in the car – that it, we don't know if that actually happened. Yeah. So that's what makes that so disturbing. And the fact that the whole line about throwing, like yeah. getting the kid involved, the yeah. baby involved at it, that turns the creep factor to like yeah. a thousand. The other scene, which again, we already knew he was going to survive because he's the one who wrote the book. This is based on towards the very, very end of the film. When Robert Gray Smith confronts the projectionist, well, let me tell the story. Okay, go okay. ahead. That so, scheme is very scary. Okay, so at at some point, the police are basically just like, we're following active leads. We don't have any. And Paul Avery has, you know, decided, you know, he throws away all of his files. He's like, I'm done with this. Lives on a boat. I'm living on a boat. Now, turns out, um, if you do any research, that all of that was not true. Mm. He actually has, like, a family and everything, and... But again, movie magic. Mm-hmm. So it's all up to Robert Graysmith. He yeah. is to the point where he feels uh, he's obsessed and feels compelled to find the Zodiac killer. And throughout the movie, we're watching, you know, Graysmith and his family. You know, he at the beginning of the movie, you see him with his son taking his son to school eventually. And he's divorced. You you know that he's divorced. He talks about that with uh um, another character. And then he goes on a blind date and meets someone and then they don't have their wedding or watch him like get together. You just, it's just the way they make the movie. They're just like, Oh, all of a sudden they're living together. Oh wait, uh, there's more kids. Yeah. I guess they had more kids, you know? So we know that like, he gets married and they have, he has a family and eventually, you know, he's so obsessed with this that his wife is like, what the hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. And then he says, I'm going to write a book about this. Yeah. And she's like, what the hell are you doing writing a book about it? You know, you work at the paper. We know the Zodiac likes to, you know, send death threats. She's freaking out. Yeah. She thinks he's going crazy. He's just kind of a naive Boy Scout. You know, he... and He, he may be on the spectrum, too, <laughs> but that's a whole other story. Well, and, you know, he's doing all this research, and he's following these leads, and he's getting names of people, and he's talking to people that, you know, the cops work with that, you know, just to get information. This is a majority of this movie, but it's so well done mm-hmm. by, by Fincher and well acted by Jake Gyllenhaal to... You get caught up in this mystery. Mm-hmm. You get caught up in all the research and all the stuff he's doing, and you get... In, you're in the mania with him. Mm-hmm. Eventually, he follows these leads to where the Zodiac Killer might have been a projectionist at a movie theater where, and the Zodiac Killer, he thinks that this guy named Rick, who drew movie posters for the theater, and one of the posters he did um, has handwriting that is the most 
accurately or mo- the closely related handwriting to the handwriting of the Zodiac Killer. So he's following this lead and he gets picked up by by this guy, I forget his name, something Vaughn. And he's portrayed by the actor Charles Fleischer, who's best known as the voice of Roger Rabbit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's how I first knew who who he was. The actor has a certain cadence to his voice. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, I have all these movie posters at my house. And they're at the guy's house. And he's talking to him and he's like, you know, do you have records of when these movies were played? I want to see when the most dangerous game, which is the Zodiac's favorite movie was played. And he starts telling him, well, you know, the reason why I'm here is because of the movie poster that Rick drew. And then the act says to him, Mr. Graysmith, I made all the posters. And from that point on, you're like, Oh, shit. Oh, shit. He gets lured into a basement. (laughs) And one of the clues in in all of Graysmith's findings is that the Zodiac killer might have a basement, but there aren't a lot of basements in California. So maybe that's not a good clue. And then all of a sudden he's like, well, why don't you come to my basement? And he says to him, he's like, there's not a lot of basements in California. (laughs) Kind of scared. And he's like, well, my house has one. And yeah. it is so creepy. And it's that is scary. probably one of the scariest moments in the entire movie is the idea that he has possibly walked in, walked into the lion's den without any, without even knowing. And I don't think he'd really told anybody where he was going because he was he just so, tell. he was just so caught up in the mania of wanting to get this solved and had kind of burned all his bridges with people that he was, I mean, cause he was more or less stalking Mark Ruffalo's character. I mean, to the point where I don't, I, I don't know if Mark Ruffalo ever, his character ever got a restraining order against him, but he may as well have yeah. because he would call it all hours of the night with different theories. And, you know, that cop was giving him little hints. He was kind of feeding him breadcrumbs yeah. to kind of keep him working on the case. And, ugh. <laughs> the creep, well, well, the creep well, well, factor of that scene in particular was really major. Well, and then when he gets home after going through this trauma, he gets home and his wife has taken his kids and left him. Yeah. So now he's dealing with that. And, you know, the movie, he kind of continues his investigation. And I'm not going to ruin it for you because, A, it's an unsolved murder. These are unsolved murders. We don't know who the Zodiac Killer is. B, they give a really almost clear understanding of who the, you know, Graysmith thinks the Zodiac killer is. And you, you just really need to just watch this movie. Yeah. Um, well, if you haven't seen it, it's a great movie. If you have seen it, you, you're, you're very lucky to see one of my favorite movies and one of David Fincher's best movies. I know everyone likes seven. Everyone likes fight club. This movie is like the top David Fincher movie for me. Yeah. One other thing I really like about this movie, especially thinking about later films that these two actors did, was this movie is before Iron Man. Yeah. And it's before Robert Downey Jr. and Robert and Mark Ruffalo got to play Iron Man and the Hulk together in a film. And I feel like part of the casting for that had to be looking at how they what the chemistry was like in this film. Yeah, because the two of them in those in all the Marvel movies, they're you know, they're the science bros. They they yeah. they have a really good relationship the two of them. And, and they definitely have this back and forth 
kind of needling each other like they do in this movie. It's hard to think of this movie and not picture think a little bit of like Tony Stark. Only because no. only for me only because I I love Robert Downey Jr. I just think his charm and his swagger. He's just able to really he pours all of it into this character. He pours all of it into a lot of his characters. He I does. think I think that that's just kind of his thing. His, his natural kind of you know acting cadence. I mean, he plays Sherlock Holmes, and even when he's in the Sherlock Holmes movies, which yeah. aren't great, I but, like them. Well. I enjoy them. Mystery solved. You're the person that likes them. <laughs> it's not just me. There's a third one coming out. There's obviously more people that like them. Or there's people that like money. There's that too. Yeah. But, well, but. What, what was your favorite drink that they had in this movie, Matt? Oh, so there's this great scene when Paul Avery and Robert Graysmith are first getting to know each other. And they go to a bar that a lot of the journalists, I guess, at the Chronicle probably go to. Paul Avery's got, you know, a martini or something and robert graysmith is drinking um an aqua velva which is this blue kind of tropical drink and you know they're talking and and avery's like you know blah 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 and we're gonna talk about why you're grading taking my trash yeah through my trash and he says and wait a minute, this cannot be ignored what is this and just and and he's like it's an aqua velva you wouldn't make fun of it if you'd had one. And then it cuts, and then the next thing is all you see is is Paul Avery surrounded by glasses that have blue drink at the bottom of them, and the he's hammered, and he's hammered, top. and it's, it's that kind of like humor yeah. that again it lightens the mood of this of this story. Yeah. And I think that I think one point that really needs to be made is, you know, I I really enjoy watching this movie. I did not have to live through Mm-mm. what the people had to live through when this happened. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like in, in, you know, going back to La Bamba, I mean, you watched it as a movie fan, mm-hmm. you know, but you didn't, you weren't alive when Richie Valens was making music, Mm-mm. a fan of his music, and then having to be 16 or 17. And imagine how, imagine the emotion you would have felt if that, if you were actually there Mm-mm. versus, you know, watching yeah. this biopic. And um, I think that's one of the very interesting things about biopics in general is, you know, they as best as they try to encapsulate, you know, what, what a person might be like, you know, the real hook is if you can, like, be teleport, transported there mm-hmm. to where you can really feel it. And I think that, in some of the scenes in Zodiac, you know, they do, he does a really good job to where in some instances where you're getting freaked out, it's like you should be freaked out. Mm -hmm. And if you were Robert Graysmith in that guy's house, you would be peeing your pants freaked out. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's, 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 um, and we can kind of see that, but, I don't know. Maybe it's just my sick mind that like enjoys watching these creepy kind of yeah. movies and whatnot. Well, you mentioned you mentioned a few other David Fincher films. I think it's fair to say this movie follows maybe the most kind of linear path than any of his other movies. He's not trying to do anything to really trick the viewer. I mean, he's telling a story in a fairly straightforward way, more or less from Robert Graysmith's 
perspective for the most yeah. part. Um, he's he's not doing any tricks where there's the big surprise in the game or the big twist in Fight Club or um, even Gone Girl with the big twist in those movies. It, it, this is a very straightforward story. Yeah. The thing that's not straightforward about it is the fact that it's unsolved and it stretched out for such a long period of time, which created a lot of confusion and yeah. uncertainty and terror. I mean, truly, I feel this was a long, stretched out terror event that happened in California for 10 plus years. Yeah. And um, it's it's hard to say, you know, how we would react if we were there because we weren't there. Mm -hmm. But it's nice having, you know, the experience that we do with our parents having to live through that. So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it was really good. In fact, you were saying earlier how this kind of is a little off brand for what we our project here because you did watch this. This came out later, but I have to tell you, I had only seen this movie. I've now seen it three times. The first time I saw it, I really don't remember it. I think because it's a longer movie and I just probably wasn't in the right mood. I don't remember it. The second time I watched it was here with you because mm -hmm. you and Sherry had talked so much about how much you love this movie. So I watched it and I, and I finally got it. I was like, yeah. oh God, okay, I get it now. I yeah. understand why you love this movie so much. Yeah. And I thought it was great. Well, it's it's a good piece of filmmaking. It's, um, you know, Fincher has a style that is um, really, he has a, like, there's a scene in Fight Club at the very beginning where he's, you know, talking about one of the in insurance kind of scam things that he's investigating mm -hmm. where they're doing like all this neat stuff with the camera mm -hmm. and zooming in and everything like that. You get that, that like really cool visual kind of techniques and stuff in this movie. Um, I, I mean, if I were to go through and just start listing movies of Fincher's that I like, I like the game, I think is a great movie. Um, I like seven and I like, Fight Club, but they're not like in my top where that would be different for a lot of other listeners. Probably. Um, I have a hard time watching Kevin Spacey now. Um, so that kind of, kind of makes impacts things weird that. impacts that. Um, I do not like the twist in at the end of Fight Club, but again, that's based on a book. So I can't really fault Fincher for that. I like panic room. Panic room is a pretty fun movie to watch. It's a, kind of slow in a little bit of it but I would say like those are in my top what about Gone Girl <sighs> I like Gone Girl a lot Gone Girl is kind of hard for me to watch and I guess maybe I, it's I, I don't think it's the acting or anything it's just it's not is it's just not as interesting to me I just mm. didn't get as captivated by Gone Girl as the other movies and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo I didn't I wasn't it's okay. I, I watch it. That was it. a remake, too, so it's kind of a little different. Yeah. And, um, I'm actually really interested in checking out um, some stuff he's doing on Netflix right now. So. Well, I just actually finished watching House of Cards, which I believe he was an executive producer of, and I think he was part more into the initial seasons, mm. um, and that, that is a trip. In fact, once once Zodiac ended the other day, I was like, oh, let me get back into House of Cards and finish that up. And yeah. I mean, watching Zodiac really 
you know, I love this movie and it got me into checking out all of Fincher's movies again and going on a Fincher kick when I first watched it. And then I, I'll just always keep watching his stuff. So I'd be interested in what our listeners think of David Fincher and his movies and where they would rank the different, the different David Fincher movies. I'm going to probably guess most people put Benjamin Button kind of to the bottom. You know, I just watched that for the first time, I think last year I had been, of putting it off for a long time. I don't know why. Um, it's, it's, it was kind of interesting. I was actually, I thought it was kind of an interesting movie. It's not, you gotta, you gotta kind of stick with it, you know, for a little bit, but you know, it, it's definitely different than the other movies he's done. Yeah. He does kind of revolve around kind of a dark theme and a lot of yeah. this stuff. So I'm always excited to see what he comes out with. Yeah. I'm, I, Always look forward to another David Fincher movie. But yeah, listeners, if you're if you like David Fincher, you know, please chime in and let us know what movies you like of his the most and why. It'd be really fun to hear about it. And um, I think that's it. I think we're gonna wrap up. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, wherever you can find us on the internet. And thank you so much for listening. And one um, one last thing before we go, I need to um, once again just throw this out there. Um, no promises, no commitments need to be made. But if anyone has any way of contacting John and Joan Cusack, we would love to have them as guests on our show. No pressure. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> it doesn't hurt to try. Yeah. Everyone should take that as advice just go big and try sometimes (laughs) so john joan if you're out there randomly listening to this podcast give it a try awesome (laughs) all right thanks again thanks for listening Like a star in my eyes, leave I open my eyes to take a peek to find that I was by the sea, gazing with tranquility. Then, when the holy girl in my came singing songs of love.